Osiris's production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Driving that train, how cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And know that notion just crossed my mind. Greetings, heads, and welcome back to another edition of Dead to Me. This time around, we're pulling on our coveralls to get down and dirty with Working Man's Dead, an album that shows a huge evolution in the band's songwriting and approach to the studio after the deeply experimental, ungodly expensive, and occasionally alienating prior two records. The year leading up to Working Man's Dead was tumultuous, to say the least. There was Woodstock in August of 1969. The band had a great time on site, but on stage was a different story. First, their gear crushed the little wheels on the pallets used to move everybody's equipment between sets. The Dead's amps were just too heavy, and they knew it was going to be a problem, but the Woodstock team didn't seem to care. That delayed things at least an hour. Then came the rain, which made an already iffy electrical situation that much more dangerous. Bob Weir almost got zapped to death a couple of times. Later, some dude jumped on stage and started handing out the infamous brown acid, even after multiple performers implored the audience not to take it. At one point in the set, the dead brought down a big screen for projections, which the heavy winds turned into Jabba's sail barge. So the whole stage starts being pulled apart while the band is trying not to freak out. The crew had to attack the screen with Bowie knives to let air pass through. All of this is to say, these were not optimal performance conditions, which is why the dead set has been left off most Woodstock archival releases. December saw the concert at Altamont Speedway, which, as we know, went completely sideways. Some believe the reason Altamont failed was because there was no free acid. Dead co-manager Rock Scully said there was nothing psychedelic about Altamont. That was reds and red wine and downers. It was fucked up. Garcia claimed the vibe of the place was off from the get-go, a kind of spiritual panic. Once the Hells Angels novices started cracking heads, the dead decided to bail. And things only got worse from there. During the stone set, Meredith Hunter was stabbed and beaten to death by Hell's Angel Alan Pissarro, a terrible incident that sent shockwaves through the scene. The dead felt some responsibility, and not just because they recommended that Hell's Angels work security. They had also helped pioneer the idea of free concerts back in the San Francisco panhandle, and those days were clearly over. One good thing came out of it, though. The Stones completely abandoned their road manager, Sam Cutler, in the aftermath, and he laid low at Jerry and Mountain Girl's place. Not long after, Cutler started working for the dead and really professionalized their road operation, which had to happen because the dead were under major financial stress. They owed Warner Brothers a metric ton of dough from Anthem of the Sun and Oxoa, and those records weren't selling anywhere near enough to pay back their debt. Then there was the situation with Lenny Hart, Mickey's dad. Now, Mickey hadn't seen his father in a long time before he showed up out of the blue with an offer to handle the band's finances. A lot of folks in the organization were skeptical. 
Rosie McGee helped with the books for a little while and had a bad experience with Lenny. He was apparently a total creeper. And it didn't take long before he ran off with all the band's money. It was Mountain Girl who busted Lenny's ass when he tried to steal a check from Warner Brothers that was earmarked for Garcia and MG to buy a house. And that wasn't going to fly with MG, and pretty soon, the jig was up. Lenny ended up skipping town with his bank teller lady friend who was in on the whole scheme. The shame over the incident drove Mickey to hard drugs, and he soon quit the band for several years. To make that money back and to keep paying salaries, the dead were forced to stay on the road, which, in addition to the new material, helped them hone their sound and combine the out-there jam stuff with song-based material. Our beloved dead non-duality starts here with Working Man's. Now, before we dive in, I wanted to tell you that Nugs.net is the live music app featuring over 15,000 shows from your favorite bands, on-demand and ad-free. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. You can download music to listen to offline and create playlists to share with your friends. I've found a bunch of heady stuff on Nugs.net, and I know you will too. As live music fanatics, the folks at Nugs.net are offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. Listen free for 30 days and cancel any time. Visit Nugs.net slash dead to me to get started. Hey, getting started sounds like a great idea. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. All right, are you guys ready to talk about a Grateful Dead album that I think we all actually like? <laughs> You're assuming a lot, Casey. Oh, man, I probably am. <laughs> Before we get going, though, I want to do a new segment. We're just going to call it Mailbag. Ooh. Excellent. Yeah, we love getting mail from our listeners, so keep sending it in. Info at deadtomepod.com is our email address, and you can find us on the socials at deadtomepod. So... Here we go. All right. This time around, listener Joey Thompson writes in about an item from our last episode. Dear Dead to Me, I wanted to drop a line to say how much I enjoy the podcast and to shed a little light on the Tom Banjo reference. As far as I know, the Tom you met in Vermont is indeed the Tom from Mountains of the Moon. Rad. I believe his real name is Tom Azarian. I know this because his son, Ethan Azarian, is a visual artist and musician in Austin, Texas. Ethan mentions it on his website... And you can go to ethanazarianmusic.com, that's A-Z-A-R-I-A-N, to get confirmation. I also heard Tom and Ethan play together a few years ago, and Tom told the audience about it then. I forget the specifics of how he and Hunter crossed paths, but the name stuck with Hunter long enough to drop it into mountains. Just thought you would like to know that you had an actual encounter with a Hunter lyric. (laughs) <laughs> and by the way, Oxamuxoa has been my favorite dead record and one of my favorite records of all time since I was 14. I'm 39 now. Thanks for the episode and all the other ones. Well, thank you, Joey, for clearing that up. So there you have it, guys. Tom Banjo equals confirmed. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so by proxy, uh, because of your association with this, are we all in the Grateful Dead thing? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's how it works, by transitive property. We're in the Hunterverse. <laughs> transitive nightfall of properties. Yep. You know, I do believe, given the topic at hand in a few minutes, who knows which 
John is the Uncle John. I, I, I do believe there is one Tom Banjo. And, and so that story seems totally credible to me. Uh, all right, listeners, let us know. Who is Uncle John? And while we're waiting for an answer on that, we might as well dive in. So last episode, we referred to Working Man's Dead and American Beauty as Cosmic Americana or Third Eye Country. And having had the opportunity to sit down and do some deep listening to Working Man's do we still think that's an apt description? Yeah, more so. I think this is where people went to find it that weren't aware of the other records. And the impact that this record had, not just on the band, but on the audience and the listening audience. Yeah, I mean, over the years, is definitely pretty profound. But there were some people at the time who were actually kind of pissed to lose their precious esoteric psych band. There were literally people that fell off of the Grateful Dead because they were like, you've gone pro. <laughs> On the other hand, they taught a lot of freaks to chill out and just enjoy the twang. They did. Well, that's just it. I think that, you know, the cosmic cowboy, he like landed on Earth and he went to Bakersfield. That's <laughs> yeah. what Working Man's Dead is. <laughs> yeah, man, they could have done a uh, Western version of The Man Who Fell to Earth or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one thing's clear to me, the songwriting is maturing like, wow. They also considerably upped their vocal game, and they weren't shy about crediting Crosby, Stills, and Nash as mm -hmm. an inspiration for that. And David Crosby doesn't deny that connection, but he says that the dead basically got there on their own steam. He said, those guys are brilliant. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they evolved their own version of it. That seems legit, you know. Um, they were spending a lot of time together. There's that amazing Crosby solo record. That, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is just the absolute heady record of all time with all if of If I the, could only uh, remember my name. Yeah, I was like, if I could only remember the name of the album. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jerry doesn't sing every song on Working Man's, but all but one of the songs is a collaboration between Hunter and Garcia, with the exception being Easy Wind, which was written by Hunter by himself. Pigpen does a killer job on the lead vocals on that track. It's like... Yeah. Pigpen's back. Yeah. yeah, he's back. It's like Swagger City. And it made me think, I want to hear Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds do a cover of Easy Wind. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. They could lay into that fucker. But to me, this is the first dead record where everything works. And I think that's a testament to their actually having a clear vision of what they wanted the thing to sound like before going into the studio. That and the development of the Garcia Hunter songwriting team. And it's also a return to their folk roots, which could be a key to why they sound confident. And, you know, as Hunter said, we knew that idiom cold and you can hear it. And I think the, the engineers, um, you know, had kind of figured shit out too. Betty got to do some of her first solo mixing on Working Man's and she also did the master all on her own. The label loved it. Warner Brothers was psyched that the record was done on time, on budget, and there were discernible melodies. Wasn't it 28 days? Was yeah. that all? Yeah. It's like the exact opposite <laughs> of the prior two records. Light speed. Truly light speed. And the record starts off really strong with Uncle John's band, which we should give a little listen to now and then come back and talk about. Don't you worry anymore Cause when life looks like easy street There is danger at your door Think this through with me Let me know your mind Whoa. 
It's a buck dancer's choice, my friends better take my advice. You know all the rules by now and the fire from the ice. Will you come with me? Won't you come with me? Oh, oh, what I want to know Will you come with me? Goddamn, will I declare Have you seen the light? There was a built of cannonballs Their motto is don't tread on me Come here, Uncle John's bed so Hunter's whole metamythical poetry is really starting to reveal itself on this one. It's a beautiful song, but there's definitely some darkness below the surface. I'm thinking about lines like, when life looks like easy street, there's danger at your door. And then later there's the nod to impermanence, which is a recurring theme across the band's catalog. It's the same story the crow told me. It's the only one he know. Like the morning sun you come and like the wind you go. So it sounds like a, a nice little folk pop ditty, but it's got some deeper currents. And guys, I'm starting to think these, these guys might be hippies. <laughs> <laughs> Bold take. Seriously. What gave it away? I, I, mean, I mean, Hunter's writing on this is so... Uh, this, is, this is what the Grateful Dead needed. I love... All eras of the Grateful Dead, uh, especially I was listening to the first album just yesterday. I love that album. Oh, you went back? I, I did go back, absolutely. Nice. Hmm. But there's something about Hunter's writing that encapsulates not just what the hippie movement were about, but also like the beat poets, everything that's going on. And it's yeah. all, and to my mind, he's one of the best. But like Uncle John's Band is now a very important song for me because, as you guys know, maybe not the listeners, I have famously hated on Phil Lesh for damn near 40 years. It's crazy <laughs> stuff, man. Phil's key. He's linchpin. Right, he's key. He is. So, uh, so in, just in prepping for this episode, I was listening to Uncle John's band and the whole little breakdown at the end. And I heard him slip out of time into outer space, and yeah. all of a sudden I got it. And now, <laughs> now I am finally, at long last, on Team Phil. Welcome to the Lesh Bus. He keeps everything so beautifully off-kilter, just refusing to play the one. It's just an yep. amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly a lyricism to his playing, and, and I think to your point earlier, Casey, just about this, this being an idiom, and, and sort of a, a choice of, of homecoming. You know, In the band's biography, they're all sort of, they're sort of like going through some, some settling moments, right? They've moved out of the hate. They're kind of, you know, yeah. slowly colonizing Marin County and learning a different pace of life and really becoming adults. It doesn't mean they're not still broke from the previous studio adventures. <laughs> Nothing says adulting like being broke. There's never going to be a story where it turns out like Radiohead, that Kid A was because Radiohead was in like dire financial straits. No, I mean, these guys were facing serious pressure in yeah. between, you know, Lenny Hart, Mickey's dad absconding with their meager savings or the, you know, sheer hole that they found themselves in with Warner Brothers having spent all the labels money and those records weren't selling very much. Right. You know, it was kind of a nightmare scenario, but it 
it forced them to do two things. And that one was, you know, maximize their efficiency in the studio and deliver a product that might get them out of that hole with the label. And the other was stay on the road because it's the only way you can pay your staff. Yeah. Now, to my mind, in terms of the songs and the, and the writing here, you know, one thing they talk about is that this was the first time they approached an album wanting to understand how all the songs on it would fit together to tell a story. Totally. Um, which is kind of an interesting facet. But what's what's also fascinating to me is that I think Uncle John's is the first time you get um, a song in their discography where it's both a song where the text is is about something else, but it's also a commentary on the nature of the band and and their live shows, right? And so songs like, you know, like Playing or The Music Never Stopped would sort of become... They're not about the dead, but they become about the dead because of how they're used in the live setting. And that's what I mean by metamythical. Yeah. You know, it's working on multiple levels. There's a sociological aspect with the dead in their scene, and then there's this other mythology, which also draws from and incorporates older mythologies. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why the songs start to take on this, you know, extra kind of uh, hue or this patina. They, um, they're much more than the sum of their parts in, in a lot of ways. Not to nitpick, though, the vocals are not as locked in as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> I, I've always wondered if that was why Crosby sort of said, no, they get credit for... <laughs> <laughs> right, we, we couldn't fix this. Yeah, right. I saw a wonderful uh, YouTube... You guys remember Further.net? Yes. Yeah, okay, so, so there was an interview with uh, Hunter and Bob Weir and Phil Lesh on there talking about Working Man's Dead. It's up on YouTube, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes, and talking about how, uh, what they owed to Crosby, Stills, and Nash and how they just heard that and they were paying attention, much like the Beach Boys to the Beatles, they were paying attention to the English production, Nash being English, they, the stacked vocals, and this yeah. is just a recording technique that was germane to that. Yeah, Graham Nash was coming from that English choral tradition yeah, exactly. and you'll find a lot of those young British bands kind of steeped in that the Benjamin Britten style of singing you know they heard it in church and then they sang it at school and the nation was investing in its own classical yeah. traditions at that time and I think a lot of it carried over Graham Nash of course ended up bringing some of that vibe to the US with CSN they just wanted to replicate that again my theory about they're just chasing a hit <laughs> well now they had to and this time they got it. Yeah, they mostly got it. I mean, you can't play a line like Goddamn I Declare on the radio and you know, Casey Jones isn't going to fly. But yeah, they, they could sell some records now. And some of it might be, you know, the songs are friendly to the ear. And I, I think they come by that Americana aspect, honestly, coming from the folk tradition. And Jerry is interested in Bakersfield guitar. Bobby loves cowboy songs. But there's no other album like Working Man's Dead. I think you said it best when you said they continually fail up. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they want to be successful on some level. As anarchic as they are at their core, part of it's financial. Part yeah, of it is yeah. that they need they need the hit. They're hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. They need to sell some fucking well, records. And that's just to the label, you know. Yes. They, right. they owe the IRS money, and you know, it's, it's not a good scenario. Uh, and that feeling of desperation, I think, comes through some of the tracks. I'm thinking in particular of Dire Wolf, which we're going to listen to in a second. You know, that song is constantly vying for the number one spot in my personal dead favorites. I'm not alone in our household either. Our nine-year-old goes around singing it all the time hmm. uh, in between Bad Guy and Old Town Road, <laughs> <laughs> which, which makes me wonder, is Dire Wolf like some distant relative of Old Town Road in some parallel universe or this actual universe? In this actual universe, yeah. <laughs> well, let's check out a little of Dire Wolf. Mm -hmm. 
up an area the wolves are running round. The winter was so hot and cold, froze ten feet beneath the ground. Don't murder me, I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. I sat down to my supper. Was a bottle of red whiskey. I said my prayers and went to bed. That's the last they saw of me. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. When I awoke, the diet was six hundred pounds of sin. Grinning at my window, all I said was, "Come on in, but don't murder me." I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. The wolf came in. I got my cards. We sat down for a game. I cut my deck to the queen of spades, but the cards were all the same. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. Don't murder me. If uh, I guess if a wolf knocks on your door, you're supposed to play a game of cards with it. Is is sort that's of, the takeaway? Yeah, um, you, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about the dead is that there's always someone kind of playing the band's id, and there are different ways in which they they do it. You know, Jerry's id is sort of um, wharf rat, and it's uh, um, it's a little bit more lyrical and and poetic. You know, Pigpen wants his woman not to hide his liquor, uh, and Bobby's on the run because he messed around with the preacher's daughter <laughs> in jorts. But um, but this album just holds all of those identities in such a delicate balance. Yeah, and Direwolf is an example of something that I had not anticipated, which is that the alternate versions of this on the uh, on the box set uh re-release there's a version of it where bobby's singing oh wow and it's good it's it's really compelling and and it's unfamiliar and and you sort of want to uh hear more about it but i think it wasn't a given that this was going to be a song that garcia had the lead on right they had to try it yeah i'm really glad that garcia ended up singing it though because he brings a certain weariness to it knowing quality exactly wisdom from beyond history or something and this is also where some of those hunter tropes start to emerge the themes he would return to time and again at one point phil lesh allegedly asked hunter can you write a song that isn't about cards trains or crows (laughs) (laughs) the answer was no i'm (laughs) betting not on this album (laughs) yeah (laughs) eduardo because you're versed in the folk side of things yeah what is the history of the dire wolf in the folklore this is like kind of like the second rate saber-toothed tiger Mm -hmm. is what it is (laughs) that's right of doom (laughs) normally when we see animals in songs or in literature and stuff they more often than not represent death i just thought it was a game of thrones reference (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the dead are very steeped in american folklore they're now creating this weird americana 
and uh, and here you have this thing that has persisted to this day. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, I mean, first of all, George R. R. Martin is, of course, a raging deadhead. Hence, <laughs> hence the Weirwood and all kinds of other things. Wow, you know, I haven't read the books, and I only watched the first season, but that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's safe to say that his direwolves are uh, Hunter's direwolves. <laughs> wow, we are everywhere. You know, one of the things that comes up with interviews with the band from around this time is that they had this idea of like, you know, I think they'd been listening to the band. Music from Big Pink. Yeah, yeah, which Kevin mentioned in the last episode. It's still in play. It is. It influenced so much in this time period. You know, I think what they made a conscious decision to do was to basically take as many kind of tropes and familiar motifs um, from uh, Harry Smith's anthology of folk music and from the folkway stuff and just everything else that was kind of swirling around and to give it a self-consciously more Western flavor. Yeah. Um, rather than mining the South and sort of singing about stuff they didn't know, they, they, they kind of set it on the plains and they made yeah. it about, you know, cowboys and games of chance. And so I don't think there's a direct like precursor to the dire wolf in this song, but I think the idea of a kind of mythical, dangerous creature showing up and wanting to play a game of, of chance with you. Yeah, and it really starts to connect the dead to an interest that they would have throughout their career in Native American mysticism. Yeah. And their relationship with the shaman Rolling Thunder in particular. Yeah, the coyote is a trickster, the wolf is a hunter, and mm-hmm. even Casey Jones. I mean, there is an actual casey jones song which garcia won't won't get around to recording until much later in his life on his like fifth homecoming yeah you know we don't need to play it but the question does arise am i named after casey jones (laughs) (laughs) at least partially i think is the answer i mean really growing up i was resistant to the dead because i just kept hearing from people two things all the time one was casey at the bat and the other was casey jones it's like great you got this one guy who strikes out in front of the whole town and the other one crashes a train of course the real life casey jones saved a ton of lives at the cost of his own correct and i don't think he was actually high on the cocaine One of the interesting dynamics here is exactly when the dead kind of go straight at the Americana. And I say it's interesting because we talk about them as being on this like psychedelic excursion. And they have been for the past several years. They've been kind of pushing the boundaries of of consciousness. But it's not just coming home. It's kind of how you come home that matters because you've changed. And so it's not that the things you've never seen will seem familiar, like in Terrapin Station. It's things that you have seen plenty now seem unfamiliar and strange and you get to explore them anew. And I think Garcia, you know, he does that every decade or so. Um, they'll do that on Reckoning in 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then he'll famously do it with Grisman again in the early 90s. It's like, what do we do with this new filter? What does my deeply weird eye of experience reveal? Yeah. And on this record, they also dig back into their blues bag. I'm thinking in particular of songs like New Speedway Boogie, which we'll listen to a little bit of right now. <laughs> Please don't dominate the rap jack If you've got nothing new to say If you please don't back up the jack This train's got to run today Run with 
Supposedly, this is the band's response to Altamont, but if that's true, it seems pretty wishy-washy. It's sort of like, hey man, bad stuff happens, just leave us out of it. Yeah. It's like, you know, if there's an issue that they're addressing, they're certainly dancing around it. However, the line, one way or another, this darkness got to give, is like a perfect mantra for our time. I know I go around and repeat it constantly. (laughs) Yep. And just the pace of the song is just so menacing and it's just like this sort of like evil thing lurking waiting to happen seriously it's like a manson family creepy crawl yeah i think though you guys are underestimating how how it does actually speak to it i mean it's altamont clearly was confusing to everybody well yeah there was no acid correct (laughs) and that's why most things are confusing in life to be be quite honest just skip the brown kind but all the lines have to do all all the all the courses have to do with pulling a weight and a bigger weight and can you pull it yourself but like there's something like now i don't know what i've been told it's hard to run with the weight of gold other hand i've heard it said it's just as hard with the weight of lead And that indicates that, like, maybe you become a target. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an awareness here, but there's also an open question of where to lay the blame. Like, who's responsible? And the term woke was not invented then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's like, we can't cancel Altamont. Right, right. Although we probably should have canceled Altamont. (laughs) Yes, they should. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about a song that we've brought up on the show before, but never had a chance to do a real deep dive with, and that is Black Peter. So let's give a little listen. (laughs) 
come to see me last night. I was laying in my bed and dying. And if I know from sin and jail. Say the weather down here so fine. Just then the wind came squalling through the dark. Just wanna have a little peace to die and a friend or two I love at hand. So here's the most beautiful song you've ever heard about a dude on his deathbed. This thought towards the end of the song is beautiful and say it's just like any other day that's ever been. Mm -hmm. Sun going up and then the sun it going down 
shine through my window and my friends, they come around. Well, that's actually what stands out to me. You know, even though it's about death, there's an uplifting quality. The narrator's dying and all he wants is a friend or two to be there with him. And, you know, that line, everything leading up to this day or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's just like any other day. That's a kind of, you know, equanimity in facing oblivion. Yeah, it's an acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, Robert Hunter is getting at that whole idea of impermanence. And that's something I think the Hunter Garcia collaboration would continue to reveal in all kinds of glorious ways. Well, this song and High Time both make such use of like air and space. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. There's a lot of negative space in it. And it takes some degree of confidence or uh, hallucinogens to just be like, I'm going to put out songs that are almost barely there in some respects. And yeah, there's like space that you could drive a Mack truck through. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like, you know, when you're in it and you're sort of hanging on it, it feels like it's several minutes between the end of one measure and the start of the next. Yeah, and that's why I love it. It reminds me of Mountains of the Moon, actually, which we talked about last time around. But these kind of amorphous dead ballads are always so surprising to me because as a musician, I've played fairly complex, intricate stuff. But these songs have a certain quality, you know, I kind of forget where I am. I lose my place. It's like drifting down down a lazy river and not knowing what's coming around the bend. I just absolutely love it. You know, with Black Peter, the thing that always jumps out at me is, first of all, what you called out, Kevin, which is this idea of like, it's a person on their deathbed remarking that there's nothing unique or special about the day or all of the days that led up to that day. I think it's just an ethos that this whole crew followed. Yeah. How do you want to live? You want to live with people around you. You want friends. You want to live with love, surrounded by love. Honestly, at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest messages of the Grateful Dead. And that'll do it for this episode of Dead to Me. Be sure to come back next time. We'll be talking about American beauty. And keep sending in those letters. Info at deadtomepod.com. Socials at Dead to Me. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. 